0: Belong. Become. Believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for Sunday, April 30th, 2023 is from our spring retreat at Devil's Den State Park in Arkansas. And the speaker is Stan Mitchell from Grace Point Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Well, thank you guys for... Um, inviting and hosting and letting me be a part of, of, of what you're doing here. I'm Stan Mitchell, pastor uh, for the last 28 years in Nashville, Tennessee, just by way of introduction, but from an urbane place called Perigold, Arkansas. Anybody know where Perigold is? It's a little suburb right outside of Goobertown, Arkansas. <laughs> Goobertown, Possum Grape, Bald Knob but the greatest of all is Toad suck, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, where to start, where to start. I would, I would love to have some interaction with you this morning just to get way out in front and start at the end and, and move backwards a little bit. The work that I do these days is centered mostly around LGBTQ inclusion uh, within the bounds of the Christian church. That's my life, that life was born out of other things and it's a part of other things, but that's the work that I do now. Um, This retreat actually sets up well for me to tell a little bit of my story. And I think in terms of introduction and the first time you're with a group of people, maybe the best thing that we can share is our story. Parker Palmer, one of my favorite authors and thinkers, says it's amazing that a religion supposedly vested in the idea of incarnation again and again finds itself lost in disembodied concepts. There's nothing more potent. The word, even in its ink form, is described as not being primarily an ink form, but the word was made flesh. Frederick Bietner, this is probably some slant of what he said, but the gist was this. If theology has three parts, at least two of them are autobiography. All of us, our stories, our lives, where we come from. So much of the way we see God, the way we see life comes out of personality and sociology and the setting that we come from. And I know that's true of me. So to talk about God, to talk about life, I don't think it's narcissistic to talk about that through the filter of our own experience. And so I'll share a little bit of that today. My granddad, when he was passing away, great great saint, song leader in the church, remember the red back hymnals? Turn to page 133, remember all that? My granddad, when he was passing away up in the Veterans Hospital at Poplar Bluff, he had been uh, battling congestive heart failure for a while, so the last few days, just trying to keep him comfortable from the internal drowning. But at one point, we were there around the bed doing that thing that we do with our loved ones, singing songs, all the hymns that he led us in. And at some point in that process, he came out from under the anesthetic just enough to look up at me and he had this cogent moment where I said, you know, he, the cliched thing but you mean it of just helping someone transition and let go and my granddad said to me he said well son he said I I guess the Lord's taken me the long way home and almost immediately I knew what he was referring to because we'd been discussing preacher sermons for years my granddad was a wonderful saint who loved sermons and the notes and the margins of his Bible was all filled in with the sermons that he had heard. He never could remember what a sermon was about, but he loved them. And it was always he would say, "Boy, I tell you, Brother Dean preached today." I say, "Really?" He said, "Oh, it was good, good, good. Just a blessing." Whoa, that man preached, and you'd say, "Well, what was it about?" He said, "Oh, it was good, it was good, it was good." But but what was his what what was the the gist of it? He said, Well it said, Mmm uh, um, Well it was about the Lord and what have you. It, but I knew when he said the Son of the Lord is taking me the long way home that he was referring he was referring to this text from Exodus thirteen, in keeping with the Exodus and deliverance and all of that. It so happened that after Pharaoh released the people, God didn't lead them by the road through the land of the Philistines. Parenthetical, which was the shortest route. For God thought if the people encounter war on that road, they'll change their minds and go back to Egypt. The Lord's taking me the long way home. God, not always concerned with simple math, knowing that the shortest distance between two points is a straight line, the text, and my granddad agreed at that point in his life, the text was clear from from a spiritual perspective, the shortcut's not always the best cut. And I think it would uh, probably be a consensus around this room that none of us reflectively, especially those that have lived some decades, look back on life and feel like that the path for you has been the shortest point between two points. It's been this serpentine, circuitous, winding road that that you've learned to trust that all things somehow work together And whatever the primary plan was, if there was ever a primary plan, has long since been departed from right? But somehow there's that grieving process of letting go of that straight line, that grieving process of letting go of the yellow brick road, that grieving process of letting go of what would have been the simple straightest path because there's no going back and doing it now. But on the other side, you begin to look back and realize that none of these steps could have been skipped. All of these steps in their own way, painful though they might be, are hallowed. And that somehow, as my grandmother used to testify, the raw eggs and the bitter bacon powder mixes with the sugar and the flour and the vanilla and somehow under the heat of life, a cake comes out. Of all these disparate pieces that maybe many of them we wouldn't have chosen. And that's been my path. How in the world does a kid from Northeast Arkansas, how does a young evangelical preacher from Northeast Arkansas end up in the place that I am now? I'll tell you this, I have a dad in Northeast Arkansas that would like to know the answer to that. (laughs) This, this journey of deconstruction, disorientation, Brueggemann calls it, this journey of what I think is maturation. A journey that the people I love the most in the world consider not admirable, but more about apostasy and heresy. People ask me, I'm 55 years old. People ask me, what's been the hardest part? selling a 23-acre campus, losing 2,500 members of the church, <laughs> death threats, two police at church for three years, wore a vest for six months, bulletproof. What's been the hardest part? None of that. That all makes for a good story. <laughs> hardest parts. A hardest, <laughs> see? low dew point around that. All the other stuff, Lord. I'm no martyr. Hardest part, sitting with my old Pentecostal dad the other day watching a St. Louis Cardinal ball game. Somewhere in between my travels of doing this and working and advocating, somewhere between HRC and GLAD and pride parades and Christian churches and working with denominations, I sit with an old man that I love. Mark and I sat with him yesterday at a Razorback baseball game. First day I've had him out in two years. Mom battling dementia, he won't leave her. He's a wonderful man. It's amazing how many people in that world are so much better than their theology. I tell him all the time, if God turns out to be a third of the person you are, we'll all be fine. We're sitting there watching a Cardinal ball game and somewhere between the second and third inning, out of nowhere, he says, well, son, I don't know exactly how to say it. And I think, then don't. (laughs) But I want to tell you where this evangelical Pentecostal father of me is. He feels obligated before God to make sure that I know that he knows that I know that he knows and that God knows that he knows and I know that God knows. There's this moral... Doctrinal obligation to stay clear that I am not approving of this. Because in that world, the fear is so thick that even if you don't have direct guilt, you don't want to have guilt by complicity. And so somewhere between a second and third inning, and this is me driving over from Nashville every week to spend two days in the middle of everything else I do just to help him with mom. But she appreciates, and and I'm honored to do it. But none of that really matters because I've gotten doctrine wrong. Because the burden on believing in our world is so thick. I mean, believing the right thing is the difference between burning for eternity while you're getting eaten by worms with your children there, and living in eternal bliss. That's a heavy burden on believing right. So dad whispers, your life hasn't turned out the way your mother and I thought it would. I see, 55, I do have the psychic capacity to live with the fact that I've disappointed with my parents. But I also have developed within that psychic capacity the honesty to be able to not be dismissive about what that still does inside of me. At 55, At some point near midlife, you begin realizing the years of my life are not like calendar pages that get torn off and thrown away. They're the concentric years of the tree's life inside. They're still a part of a living xylem inside of me. The tree's not just living in that last year's iteration where the bark grows. Inside of that tree are all of the years. When I turned 55 a month ago, I didn't cease being 54. Remember when you thought 23 replaced 22? It doesn't. I'm 55 and 54 and 53 and 52 and 51 and 50 and 49 and seven and six and 14. John Bradshaw says all of those years deserve to be at the table. You just have to make sure that the latest iteration is the one chairing the meeting. (laughs) But in chairing the meeting, it has to recognize that when an old man engages me through the bark of my 55 year oldness and engages me and says your life hasn't turned out, trying to deflect him, I said, well, it's to me either. It hasn't turned out the way I thought it would who has taken me a long way home. Knowing that he wanted to be clear with me, he sat for a minute questioning whether there was clarity and so he finally added the quiet exclamation. Well, I guess the word's just disappointed. Mm -hmm. And the grief for me is not what that does to me as much as what it's doing to them watching these precious people. He explained to me a few months ago that he thinks maybe my mom's dementia was the mercy of God. To relieve her of having to deal with the life that I now live and the ministry that I now do. That pales in comparison to what my LGBTQ brothers and sisters deal with, but I say all the time, and I don't know when it came to me, If you say you're an ally to a group of people and aren't getting hit at least by some of the rocks thrown at them, you're not standing close enough. And this is the experience of these, our brothers and sisters, for a long, long time. By way of story, I grew up in Paragould. My dad was one, now we grew up so far out in the country You had to go toward town to hunt. That's literally where we grew (laughs) up. Three miles down the gravel road, a long way out. My dad was one of fifteen kids. He was number twelve of fifteen, first one born at the hospital. That's how far out in the country. My dad of those fifteen kids is the only one with a high school degree. That's the world that we come from. When I say my dad was one of fifteen, people always you know out. If I'm in Chicago, they say Roman Catholic. I'm like, no, Northeast Arkansas. so which is Similar, but for different reasons. Grew up in the United Pentecostal Church. A subgroup of a subgroup of a subgroup. If you're looking eighth grade biology, if you're thinking taxonomy, it, Christian, Protestant, Evangelical, Wesleyan, Nazarene, Pentecostal, Oneness Pentecostal, United Pentecostal. You get way down to the genus. United Pentecostal. You know them. I used to preach revivals. I preached revivals in Bella Vista and Siloam Springs and Bentonville, Rogers and Fayetteville and Springdale. Every little United Pentecostal church in the area. If you know the United Pentecostal people, they're precious people. But they are... And we were incredibly sure we were the last of the Mohicans of God's revelation. Our, our premise was that there in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1915, when my great, great granddad, I, I got heritage. It's like when the Mormons talk, they always trace all I was on. My family was on the wagon train. My, my great, great, great grandmother was one of Joseph Smith's wives Well, for me, our heritage, the beginning of church history for me was 1915, Hot Springs, Arkansas, at an Assembly of God meeting when my great-great-granddad and 11 men got a revelation. And the revelation had this underlying premise that was Christian in its own way because this has kind of been an ethic of Christianity down that taxonomy for a long time. The newest group that says God has spoken to us. And God has not only spoken to us in a new and fresh way, but possibly in a way that nullifies everything that's been done before. And I remember Charlie Brown was sitting at a typewriter one day typing away and the, cart- the script has Lucy walked up behind him kind of dubious and she looks over his shoulder, not normally seeing him in an academic setting. And she says, what are you doing, Chuck? Charlie Brown looks up sheepishly and says, I'm writing a paper. She said, what are you writing about? He said, church history. She said, wow, church history. How far back are you going? Charlie Brown looks up, now he's kind of indignant. He says, to the beginning. She says, really? Let me hear some of it. He says, okay, he pulls the paper out and he says, our pastor, Brother Johnson, was born in 1932. our group literally felt they got a revelation and the underlying premise of that revelation was the church had been dormant for 19 centuries. Somehow it had gone into a place of negative stasis and if anybody was saved in that 18th century, 19th century period, we didn't really think so. But our group, resur- that's, That's the foundation. That's the substrate of my life. The 15 kids of my dad's family, his mother was one of eight and all of them were in Paragould and they all had five to 10 kids. Our family divided up Church of God, Assembly of God and United Pentecostal. We didn't even venture out to Nazarene or Baptist. I always joke, the United Pentecostal, when we studied studied comparative world religions, we were studying the Baptist and the Methodist. That was comparative world religion for us. And I can joke about us, but don't you joke about us. This is my, my people. I don't look back with any wound licking or memories of raging hypocrisy. I remember a precious group of people doing their best with the information they had. And that's not everybody's experience, and I understand that, but it's mine. I don't look back and remember drinking poison. I remember drinking water. Even in those fearful trips to the altar, somewhere in all of that there was water that hydrated me. I didn't eat Jesus. There were toxins in that water. But there's a difference between water with toxins in it and direct poison. The irony that you have to untangle at this point, and and the LGBTQ people that I get to serve now really have more of this to untangle than I, is is the interplay of those toxins in that water. I mean, it's mind-numbing to realize that you were being hydrated and given life at the same time you were being made sick by the same substance. It's what toxic water does. It's, it's, I remember that hit me when I was down in Wanamint, Haiti a few years ago with a young lady from our church that has an orphanage there. And we were out making the rounds one day and I saw a child drinking water that was obviously just a, it was little more than open sewage. And I lunged for the child to stop it and care us this young woman that I dedicated when she was a baby and now has far surpassed me, she stopped me and she said, what are you doing? I said, well, it's gonna drink that, it's gonna get sick. She said, Stan, if she doesn't drink that, she's gonna die. Well, she's also going to get diphtheria and E. coli, and, well, but she'll be alive to deal with that. That's the only water she has. I drank water that was the only water I had. And then looking back, I don't have memories of drinking direct poison. I have, I have memories of Sister Carter and Sister Eubanks and Brother Greer and a group of people that thought awful things about God, but were doing the best with the information they had. That was my world. And um, the first crack of deconstruction came for me. I mean, the issue of inclusion and exclusion did not begin for me around LGBTQ people or around other world religions. The first fissure, the first pinhole of light in that entire process for me began when I was 11 years old. And I remember it vividly. It didn't come out of an academic study, but it came it came from the place where most deconstruction or the seeds of most deconstruction come for all of us Uh, and that's an incarnational level. We're not abstracting in an ivory tower about disembodied concepts, but we're having to deal. You know, you're a 17-year-old kid in Rogers, Arkansas, and for the first time you meet someone who moves here from India, and you realize they have another religion, and you begin to just wonder, is eternal salvation really based on the whimsy of geography? Remember those first thoughts? That's where deconstruction starts at an incarnational level. And for me, it was, as the United Pentecostal side of the family, it was when Uncle Bud, who was in the Church of God side of the family, Assembly of God and Church of God, they had their difficulties, but at least there was some knowledge that maybe God will let you in. When I say the United Pentecostals, we only believe we were saved. That's not true. We didn't believe we were saved. We just thought if anybody had a chance, it might be us. That's how insecure we were about all. But I remember Uncle Bud passed away. You know, you're from Parable Arkansas, so and when you have two Uncle Buds, an Uncle Sonny and an Uncle Junior. <laughs> Uncle Bud passed away and he was a, a loving, tongue-speaking elder, but we would always quietly say on the UPC side, he didn't have the same Holy Ghost I got. Because our Holy Ghost don't let women cut their hair in our Holy Ghost, our, isn't it amazing the things we say. And, and I know what I'm saying, maybe caricature for Baptist and Methodists, but there are, there are more refined expressions of this simplicity in Church of Christ and Presbyterian and Baptist. Yours was a little cleaner and not quite as silly, but it's still there. At least ours was silly enough and blatant enough that for me, it stumped me early. I remember at the funeral, I remember people crying, and especially I thought to myself as I interpreted it, because I was the kid, I, I was not Teflon, I was Velcro, I absorbed all of it. I, I had an acute conscience, and I sat on the front row and I bought it all with no equivocation, which was the way they taught it. But I remember at Uncle Bud's funeral, I noticed, or at least I made myself notice that the UPC side of the family were crying more. And I remember 11 years old, fifth grade, I thought, sure, of course we are. Because we know we haven't only lost him here, we've lost him for all eternity. It was devastating. And I looked at my dad, mom, and Aunt Diane, and I thought, hell. And we cried and we cried and we cried, and I thought, Uncle Bud's in hell. Uncle Bud is in hell. And then we got back to the fellowship hall and within 30 minutes I was watching my dad, Ned, Diane, and the others eating banana pudding and potato salad and laughing. And God, I thought, what in the world? I want to stand up in, in, the, in the buffet and say, Uncle Bud's in hell. about and a door cracked open Ralph Waldo Emerson said a mind once exposed to a better idea can never shrink to its original size <clears throat> and there are these places where these fissures these fault lines in our soul develop of course the world I come from says those are opportunities for Satan to lead you and pull you into heresy and you'll believe a lie and be damned but a crack developed in my soul around the issue of inclusion. I think the fire is getting me, and I'm going to need some water. <clears throat> if anybody has, or wine, the wine. It hit me. either these people don't believe that fully or they're the cruelest people in the world. And I knew they weren't the cruelest people in the world. And I looked around and my mind opened. The issue of who's in and who's out did not begin for me as a pastor in Nashville, Arkansas in 2015 when I stood up and made a statement of inclusion. The issue of who's in and who's out occurred to me problematically at a funeral in Paragold, Arkansas for Uncle Bud. And the expansion of that, I remember how it moved because the gradations of a sincere conscience, you just can't shift this stuff quickly. I remember the, the thought that maybe Assembly of God and Church of God and other Pentecostals might be okay. Expanded then to Billy Graham. And, and is Billy Graham really lost? There were some of our people that actually picketed Billy Graham crusades. Picket's the wrong word. We handed out tracts because we knew the people were deceived. But then the question is Billy Graham. But... Then you get Billy Graham in and then the question becomes the Church of Christ. And finally you stretch on out to the main line and the Methodists, those people that don't believe fat meats greasy. I appreciate that some people got that. And then it's Mother Teresa. And then it's Harold Kushner and the Jewish people. And then it's Irvi Patel and her family that have moved here from New Delhi. And the question of inclusion, just how how wide an arc, how wide of a swath is the arc of God's mercy really going to cut? That's where inclusion exclusion begins. And it's not a new issue. And I'll, I'll say this and then maybe we can talk. It's not a new issue. But that muscle, that spiritual muscle that begins to develop for people in religious settings that, that make exclusionary claims, like Christianity. I was telling Mark and Jamie this morning, we were just kind of musing about where this comes from. It really, honestly, it really is a very lizard brain thing. On a mammalian animalistic level we, we have, whether it's an innate sense or a learned sense, that's still curious to anthropologists, but we do have a very early expression, all, all humans express very early this sense of scarcity, an acknowledgement of scarcity, a concern that there's not enough, right? Food and air and water and money and property, space. Animals wrestle all species wrestle with, is there enough? And the fear that comes with, is there enough? And that sense of scarcity does a couple of things. It turns friends into foe, and it turns neighbors into competitors because we are all warily looking at things that we cannot live without and wondering, is there enough for all of us? Are there more people than there are chairs when the music stops playing? And that sense of scarcity causes us to behave in ways that are unenlightened, unsaved, un... They're the opposite of what we would think is a Christ-formed soul. beatner says this is a soul-making universe, this is a Christ-making world. Well, this, this fear-based sense of scarcity, the opposite of love, this sense that there's not enough that makes us live uncharitably with those around us Exclusivistic religious ideology is really just scarcity thinking about God in the afterlife. We we even, it, it was subconscious, but in the book of Revelation, John said, I saw it. And it was 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. And that sounded really big, but it also gave parameters. There's a limit to how many people are going to be able to fit in there. That sense of scarcity causes us to live uncharitably and to view one another warily. We don't really hate the other, and, and our competition is not that we don't want them to have. We do want them to have. We just want to make sure that we have first. That's why the great sages all say, J- just do this. If you can find a way to love your neighbor in the same way you love yourself, you'll have done the whole deal. And that'll take a lifetime. But there's not enough. And so what do we do? We, I mean, the elder brother, we've so, we've so mischaracterized him. The elder brother never looked at the father. When the father looks around and says, where's my, where's my boy? You ever thought about that? The lost coin was the one the woman went looking for. The lost sheep was the one the shepherd went looking for. The lost son was the one the father went looking for. He never went looking for the other son. That boy came home. He so The father so believed in the circuitous long way home that he financed the trip. He said, take it. He came home. At that boy's party, the father said, somebody's missing and he went looking for the lost son It was the older boy. The whole story starts with Jesus sitting there at the table eating with a group of people and the religious authorities come up and saying, you're an emissary of God, you claim to be a rabbi. You can't commiserate with folk like this because it's guilt by proximity and it's not what God does. Jesus turns from the people he was with And I'll say this, in the beginning of Grace Point's inclusion journey with LGBTQ, we thought we were generous, magnanimous, and doing something wonderful. And we, we made these patronizing, gross, savioristic statements of we are now inviting all of our brothers and sisters, LGBTQ, to the table. We were about a year in when it hit the elders. We didn't invite them to the table, we finally joined them. If you know anything about the dietary, my God, we're out congratulating ourselves, acting like we get a Nobel Peace Prize. We didn't do anything wonderful. We stopped doing something awful. The self congratulations was so thick. I was like, Oh my God, read the Gospels again. They're at the table with him. He's at the table with them. We're the ones joining them. We've been eating crackers and drinking Welch's. They've been doing Eucharist. Jesus turns from the people he was with, that he was peaceable with, and turned to the Pharisees who said, You shouldn't be with them. And Jesus said, Can I tell you a story? Maybe three. Lost coin lost sheep and the Pharisees theologically ahead, homileticians all said we know where he's going these are the lost people heaven rejoices okay we can kind of see what you're getting at and they had no idea he's setting them up because he loved them it's funny when we are all so conservative and fundamentalist we excluded the publicans and harlots and then when we quit excluding them and joined them, we then excluded the conservatives. And we just traded one fundamentalism and one narrowness for another narrowness. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and he said, these people I'm with are going to enter the kingdom ahead of you. The grace there is that he didn't say, instead of you. He said, they're just gonna get there a little quicker because what you're dealing with is a little harder to process than what they're dealing with. but. The Pharisees and religious leaders, he said, you'll get there too. It's just harder and takes longer. Jesus was deeply compassionate to them. And he told a story about a lost coin, a lost sheep. And then he told them about, I mean, he's making the mathematics easier. Ten coins, hundred sheep, two kids. And the younger kid goes off, debauched living, and the Pharisees, homileticians still, hermeneutics, they got it. Yeah, he's talking about these people that are living riotously. And, and Jesus gets to the end of the story and the kid comes home and heaven rejoices and the Pharisees are like, okay, we get it. You can be with them if you want to. And Jesus finally gets to the part of the story that he was really going for. And he said, then like the woman who one day realized to her great shock and dismay, a coin's missing and just like the shepherd who had 99 in the fold, but 99% is not enough. I don't know how in the world we built a religion thinking that a small fraction of people going to heaven is ever gonna satisfy God. When Jesus tells stories about 99% not being enough. Jesus gets where he's going and he says, the father looked around and said, in the middle of a party, Ring on the kid's hand, robe, just had a bath, and they're celebrating him. Jesus said to the Pharisees, and the father said, Somebody's missing. He says, My boy, my oldest boy. And he went looking for him. He was the lost one. And the father goes up on the hillside, and there's a son who doesn't oh. even acknowledge his entrance and the son's sitting up on the barn looking down at the campfire where the party is being thrown for his younger brother and he's gritting his teeth and his jaws working and the father sits down beside him and joins his gaze to the party and the father whispers where are you boy and the elder brother's eyes narrow Tears glisten and water fall over his bottom eyelid and the elder brother expresses the pain, the deep pain of the religion so many of us come from. The elder brother says, let me get this straight. This kid goes out and breaks you and mom's heart and wastes your money and lives this Effed up life. And he comes home, and you throw this party for him. You see, I always thought that's where he said, you shouldn't have ever thrown this party for him. The elder brother never says that. He's dealing with scarcity, and his dealing with scarcity is to not say, I don't want all of these people to have some. It's not... Our mammalian drive to get and to hoard is not because we don't want the others to have some. It's just we're afraid that there's not enough for us. We can't believe that there's wideness in God's mercy. We can't believe that heaven has enough room for all of us. So we take this mammalian, reptilian drive to conquer scarcity, and we hoard, and all exclusivistic religion is, is the hoarding of God in heaven. But we don't do it because we don't want others there. We even build into our systems this ethical ability to let people into our silos where we hoard, if they'll just learn the right handshake and the right baptism. And But that kinda lets us control the amount so we can kinda meet out this space and not get overcrowded. The elder brother doesn't say, and I don't think you should have done that for him. The elder brother stops short. He says, you threw this party for him. And then he turns and looks at his father and says, I've been here for my whole life, slaving for you. And you've never thrown a party for me. Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, people are going to mistake you. I know that it's not because you hate these people. I know it's because you have never felt the party of grace for yourself. And when you have never experienced that bounty of grace and inclusion for yourself, you do this psychological thing called scapegoating where you take your own angst, your own insecurities and insufficiencies and you project them onto minority, vulnerable groups, but it's not because you hate them. It's because you're scared for yourself. And you project it onto them in a hateful way. And when you say, run, goat, run, you claim it's because of their immorality, but it's actually your own insecurity projected outward. The lost son was the older brother And the United Pentecostal Church that I grew up with are a bunch of good people, elder brothers, elder sisters, evangelical Christianity. Christianity writ large to some extent. Any exclusivistic religion is the hoarding of God, projecting our own insecurities of scarcity. What if the gospel is and always has been? There is enough. What if the gospel is not that you can be reunited with God but that you were never separated? What if from the very beginning our brokenness and sin could not separate us from God? What if the real story of humanity's existence born out in religion is not a story of sin and separation, sacrifice and salvation, but it's really a story of shame and estrangement and presence and healing? What I get to do now, I honestly, I try, I get it, white, male, cisgender, evangelical. At some point, I I do try to stay away from the microphone as much as I can these days. We've had our time. I do think part of the honest reparation is to get out of the way. And so I'm, I'm fortunate now because the space that I get to fill is not this space, it's pastoral care working with queer people and their families at the intersection of gender, sexuality, and faith. But these are the issues. It's not about homosexuality or bisexuality. These are the issues. It's projected shame. And to be able to serve in this space now is incredibly lovely. It's saved my soul in a lot of ways. And I haven't done anything wonderful. I realized a short time ago just to close with this, I, if my privilege is a cisgender, heterosexual, white, evangelical, all, I have every privilege across the board. If that privilege is ill-gotten gain, how do you steward that? Well, one obvious way is to simply forfeit it. But just about the time I thought that would be the only way to morally handle that kind of privilege I did i think what john's trying to do and mark and others i thought well or i could steward it and the way my life works now and i just happened onto it about four years ago i would make all of these posts on social media with erudition and theology and my best sermons and all of that stuff and there would be a certain response and then i would tell the story of a uh, Southern Baptist pastors gay kid who found me and we talked I would tell their story and all of a sudden it would explode and so I finally realized I'm not a voice for the voiceless that's the most gross patronizing white savior statement you could make my queer brothers and sisters have a better voice than I have my privilege is not that I have a voice and they don't I have a microphone and a platform and an amplification system so what could I do is get away from the microphone and turn the amplification system over to their stories. And I noticed something, Mark. I started just telling stories on Facebook and it blew up when I got away and told their story. And every day now, two to 10, somewhere between two to 10 on average, queer kids from, I mean, last week, one that stands out to me, 18 year old kid whose dad's an Assembly of God pastor in North Dakota, and he wrote to me at two o'clock in the morning and said, "I don't want to live." I get twenty to fifty of those a week, and I feel them. And by the next morning, I call, I I message them back. They private message me as a last lifeline. I message them back and say, "This is my phone number. Call me today." And they call me, and I set up Zoom calls and Facetimes, and I drive across the country, fly to where they are, and I get to just serve as a shepherd. I used to, I'm not an evangelical SWAT team anymore. I do midwifery. I don't conceive, carry, bear, raise anybody's babies anymore. I just do midwifery at the boundaries of their experience and, and just sit with these evangelical families and their queer child that doesn't want to live and try to serve them to think better thoughts about God. Because the issue is really not about sexuality and homosexuality or transgender. The the underlying issue is how we think about God and and the damage that that does. So I wasn't invited here. I reached out to John and said, I I hear what you guys are doing. I'd love to come just to, because it's life-giving to me to see this maturation that I think is happening in the body of Christ and it's happening everywhere. And I also reach out just to tell you guys it's happening everywhere. And these groups, we've all taken so many hits and lost our campuses and sold our buildings. That's Grace Point. And we're trying to survive. And I'm telling you something beautiful is happening. And it's big and it's everywhere and you're a part of it. And so I'm really, really honored. And, and I'll turn this, I've, I've, I've gone on, and I'll, we should do the Lord's Supper and join them at the, table don't you think <clears throat> Amen. thank you for listening to grace church of northwest arkansas podcast you can find more about us online at gracechurchnwa.org grace and peace